This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, well, we have to make the hot question of the day about money laundering in a public inquiry. It just seems like that is going to be the big story for us anyway over the next four hours because it's going to be happening uh, right during our show. In fact, in about 10 minutes time. Uh, And it it feels kind of like the last three, four, five years have almost led up to this point. Must have been what, back in 2015 when we first started talking about, I don't know, kind of strange goings on in the housing market. Things started to heat up, right? And then things started to get crazy. We spent a lot of 2016 talking about how nutty the market was, how housing affordability was increasingly and rapidly out of reach. Uh, We spent a lot of that time talking about crazy multiple offers and what it was taking to buy a place now. There was a, a real progression, like an arc to this story. Got to the point in 2017 where there was an election, an election that everybody thought the BC Liberals were going to handily win. And when it ended up in pretty much a tie, broken by the Green Party in favor of the NDP, so many questions about why. Well, of course, it was because people had serious concerns about affordability, the cost of living, being able to buy a home. And then we dig deeper. We start hearing stories more and more, getting louder about money laundering in our province. Is this what was going on? How are people buying these homes, flipping these homes, like just report after report? And so that kind of built to a crescendo where we knew that there was something really wrong going on in our province when it came to finances and and money and where it was going and where it was coming from. So then here we are today, waiting to find out if we're going to have a public inquiry. What is it that we want out of a public inquiry? Because we've heard the demands for it for like a year now. And they've gotten louder and louder too, right? And I think for me anyway, leaning towards that, yeah, we want a public inquiry. To me, it was frustrating to not hear from the people who had evidence of this in front of them for the last three or four years and have them explain why they looked the other way or why they felt they couldn't do anything or why they didn't do anything. And I know there were people who called yesterday and said, but now we know what the problem is and it's not going to happen again. I don't buy that because we don't actually know why people, you know, jumped on board or went along with it to begin with. And who's to say that set with those same circumstances again, that the lure of the money, the easy money, the profits to be made wouldn't suck some people in again until we completely scrub it clean. To me, that's the point of a public inquiry. That's what I'm asking you for our hot question of the day today. What would be the most important outcome for you from a public inquiry into money laundering in this province. Do you want to see people punished? Do you want to find out information? Do you think, no, we're doing this just so we can avoid a repeat of any of this happening again? Or are you of the mind that, I don't want an inquiry. We don't, I don't think we need one. So those are the four options that we have to you for our hot question of the day today. Now, you can call our buzz line with your thoughts on this. Might take you, you know, might take you a while to explain your position on it. 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. By all means, also vote. Go to simisarah980 on Twitter. You can also go to at CKNW. Just go to our CKNW Twitter account there and cast your vote. We want to know what would be the most important outcome for you from a public inquiry into money laundering. Do you want to see people punished? Do you want to find out more information about what happened? Do you want to avoid a repeat of having this happen ever again? 
or do you not want an inquiry? You think we don't need it? Those are your four options. Let us know where you come on that question. And we'll be talking a lot about it today on the show because coming up next, we go live to Victoria, where Premier John Horgan is expected to announce a cabinet decision on whether or not this province is moving forward with a public inquiry into money laundering. What's it going to look like? What is the decision? It is also clear that some individuals have refused to participate in our reviews voluntarily. We are done with asking nicely. Today, our government has given Justice Cullen the authority to do more than ask for voluntary participation. We have given him all of the powers to compel testimony and gather evidence that his new office as commissioner allows under the Public Inquiry Act. These powers are significant. They include the right to inspect any public place and seize records, and the right to apply to court to obtain a warrant to search a private place and seize records, the right to order an individual to attend a hearing and testify under oath, and to order that individual to produce any information or thing in that person's control, and the power to find a person who refuses to respect these orders in contempt in the same way as if an order of our courts was not followed. It's pretty significant. That is Attorney General David Eby there. The press conference in Victoria has just wrapped up with the Premier, the Attorney General, and the Finance Minister, Carol James. The announcement, as you've heard, a full public inquiry into money laundering in this province. It will be headed by Justice Austin Cullen, uh, formerly Associate Chief Justice, BC Supreme Court Justice. An interim report expected within 18 months. And for me, I thought the most telling sentence was from the Attorney General, where he said, what we want to know is who knew what and when. It's very simple, right? How did we get ourselves into this situation when money laundering having such a huge impact in British Columbia? Who saw it happening? Who didn't do anything? The inquiry will have some very significant powers, as outlined there from the Attorney General. It will target areas such as real estate, gaming, financial institutions, the corporate sector, the professional sector, the regulatory authorities, and has the full cooperation of the federal government, because there are lots of questions for people in positions of power in the federal government as well. Fintrack, for example, why has Fintrack not been using the teeth it has been given to crack down in some of these areas? The inquiry will be able to compel information that previous reports done by Dr. Peter German could not. So there's a lot more for us to learn here, but let's find out more about how this inquiry is going to shape up. Uh, The Premier, John Horgan, was asked specifically about what type of punishments people may receive here. Beyond just naming, shaming, like more public information, will people actually be punished as a result of what we learned during this inquiry? And here's what he had to say about that. Our objective is to, to meet the issues that uh, Minister James just talked about. Uh, it's, it's not the, you know, that perhaps other governments were intoxicated by the revenues that kept coming in. There's certainly evidence of that. We'll see if the commissioner finds that. The issue is how is this affecting people, the foregone economic activity, the family that couldn't stay in the lower mainland, the, uh, the lost opportunity for a business to start because a good idea had to go somewhere else because they couldn't afford to live here. That is the real challenge is to make sure that we're working always in the interest of the people of British Columbia. The revenues that come and go uh, are a key part of delivering services without any doubt. But I think all British Columbians want those revenues to arrive in a legitimate way, not at the expense of uh, families who lose uh, precious loved ones to an opioid crisis that is being fueled by organized crime. But if the opportunity comes up or if you find that people were doing criminal activities, will we see prosecutions? That's up to the prosecution service. That's not up to me. Okay, your one question. Which is probably a good thing. 
So we will take that as a yes. I mean, if there is criminal activity uncovered during the testimony uh, of this inquiry, the prosecution service, from what it sounds like there, will have the leeway to be able to pursue charges if they feel they can get a conviction in these cases. That may be the big if on this, right? If they feel that what they learned during the inquiry is strong enough to make it through a legal case, will they pursue it? And also, what about the cost here? So this is not going to be a short process. Interim report in 18 months, full report in two years. Uh, So May of 2021 or in and around there is when we will see the full report here. So how much is all of that going to cost? Well, the Premier also weighed in on that. The indemnity process is, again, separate from uh, the political process. There's an avenue for public officials to access those decisions, and I'll leave that to what it is. The cost, uh, we've not uh, put forward a final cost because we don't know what that will be. What we do know is the consequences of $7 billion at a minimum, $7 billion of illegal activity in the economy is having a profound impact on people and a profound impact on how we grow a sustainable economy going forward. So we will not... constrain uh, the commissioner uh, by putting a title or a, a, a tagline on it for the cost but you know in previous examples of, of commissions of this nature the cost can escalate we're mindful of that but we don't want to constrain it at this time we know that the value for money of making sure that the public has a good understanding of how we got here and more importantly how do we ensure that we can stifle this activity and eradicate it if at all possible that is premier john horgan making the announcement this morning that we are getting a public public inquiry into money laundering in this province. Now, we were asking you as part of our hot question of the day today, like, what do you want to get out of it? Uh, Do you want to see people punished? Like, do you want to see people have to go on trial as a result of what we learn? Do you want to just find out what happened? Uh, Find out who was looking the other way? Or are you doing this maybe because you just want to make sure this does not happen again? Or maybe you're in the camp that you don't want an inquiry at all. That's our hot question of the day. You can go to SimiSarah980 to cast your vote on this or at CKNW. The most popular reply that we're getting on this, and we've got uh, hundreds of votes coming in, 39% of people are saying they want to see people punished. Straight up. That's what they want to get out of this inquiry. 34% say they're doing this because they want to avoid a repeat of this happening in our province. 22% don't want an inquiry at all. And just 5% are saying they want to put all the information out there. Find out what happened. Find out all of the information. So cast your vote. Let us know what you think about that. Uh, And we can also take your emails as well. And I had an email on this from Rick who, uh, Rick, I thought you said this really, really well. Uh, Rick said, I've spent the last 30 years helping business and government leaders solve problems. Almost everything I know, I learned from some very smart clients, Rick said. Einstein famously said that if he had only one hour to solve a problem, he would spend 55 minutes understanding the problem thoroughly and then use the last five minutes coming up with solutions. This is why, Rick says, we must have this inquiry. Without knowing how and why money laundering was left unaddressed, who let it happen, why, and who could have curbed it with timely action, we run the risk, he said, of failing to address it intelligently. Money launderers are endlessly creative, Rick says. We must understand all the loopholes, the niches, the frailties, the inattention, the dereliction of duty that are allowing it to flourish. He said, I don't care if politicians are prosecuted. Being shamed is enough. But if criminal activities are revealed, I hope they can be pursued regardless of where this takes us. Let's put this news of this public inquiry into perspective to help us out with that. Now we're joined by Global News uh, Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry. Hi, Keith. Hey, Simi. Okay, so you called it. You said this is what we were going to get. What did you think of the way this is set up? 
Well, I think uh, it's set up the best possible way uh, because the terms of reference are so broad. Uh, Mr. Cullen is free to go where he wants to go, uh, albeit he's sort of tied to specific sectors, but they're the obvious sectors, uh, real estate, gaming, luxury, goods, horse racing, financial institutions, all the areas where there's been questions raised and red flags raised for, for a number, some, some time yet. The money laundering was active in those sectors. So there's really few shackles on him, if any. He's got the full uh, powers as set out in BC's Public Inquiry Act, the power to compel witnesses uh, to testify, to demand full disclosure, to conduct inspections, to uh, gain access to documents. Uh, he's pretty broadly based. He can go back as far as he wants. There's no time frame on this. Uh, so in terms, if you want a good pub, open public inquiry, I think this is framed the best way possible. Now, a couple of caveats to that. Mm-hmm. Um, David Eby was asked right off the bat, well, what about the feds? Uh, are they going to participate? He says he has the assurance of, uh, of Federal Minister Bill Blair uh, that um, that they will. But it's one thing for a minister to say that, and it's another thing to for a B.C. provincial commissioner to compel a federal employee to testify. And this is what's broken down in other public inquiries, notably the missing women's inquiry, where the RCMP refuses to testify to expose their members to you know second-guessing and this type of thing. And I'd be very surprised if FinTrack and the federal RCMP, whose, whose motives and actions may come under scrutiny and be questioned in a public inquiry in a province, may well um, cooperate. I think there's some open doubts about that despite uh, Mr. Blair's assurances that uh, that the feds are going to cooperate. So that's one caveat. The other one, and we've seen this before, it's one thing to uh, compel witnesses to testify. Their lawyer, everybody's entitled to a lawyer, and it's a taxpayer-funded lawyer. And we saw this in the Bingo Gate inquiry, where all the lawyers get involved and nobody testifies. Uh, that's the worst-case scenario. I don't right. think we're necessarily going to get to that point, but uh, I think it's a pretty good start for people looking for answers because it's a pretty wide-open inquiry. It sounds like it, and especially people who don't testify. Is there a lot of pressure? Wouldn't you think on people on people to come forth and, and tell us what you know? And if you don't, it's going to be very public. You saying, "I'm not going to talk about this." Well, that might be the consequences of that might be preferable to the consequences of actually um, being accused of uh, violating a policy or a law. And again, um, the RCMP don't like pro- provincial commissioned inquiries, and it'll be interesting whether you know they want to subject themselves to questions whether or not they follow the proper policy or not. So it's uh, I mean, people are rolling the dice a bit if they want if they get a lawyer to try to prevent their uh, testifying. But again, Mr. Cullen may go in areas that completely surprise people. You know, this is why governments don't like commissions of inquiry. Governments like to be in control. Uh, they like to set the agenda. They, li- they don't like any surprises. Uh, an inquiry can do whatever it wants, and that's why it's now been unleashed. It'll be yeah. interesting where Cullen goes with this, and how many. You know, it doesn't have to be people testifying about their own activities. They, he can get whistleblowers on there uh, who will testify about other people's activities, and that's right. where I think it's going to get interesting because there may be people testifying. Well, I told so and so all about this, and he never did anything about it. And that so and so may be a, a, a figure of public. A renown or a, a key figure in government or a key person in law enforcement. And that person may never take the stand to defend themselves, but that information may be made public. And that's where I think the most potential has for, for sort of uh, not score settling, but certainly right. who knew what when. Is that the tricky part then for the opposition BC Liberals here? Because clearly people are going to want to know what did they know and when did they know it? Oh, I think so. And I think there's going to be people asked to testify about what did you know and who did you pass it on to and what was their reaction? And that's where 
it gets a little dicey, more than a little dicey for the BC Liberals, because if, if that's what the picture, if that kind of picture emerges, that everything was hiding in plain sight, but everybody wanted to look the other way, that's a problem for, for that particular political party. Now, um, I don't think the NDP is necessarily totally going to be um, safe with this, because, again, the German report looked at real estate in the year 2018, which is the year when the NDP was running the province. Yeah. And even though the NDP has rightly taken a lot of steps to, to clean this mess up that the Liberals refused to take, the fact is it's probably still going on, um, albeit to a lesser degree. And I, I can't see Cullen necessarily ignoring the present and just focusing on the past. I think he's going to try to do both, which is why I think I'll be surprised if he can meet that deadline of May 2021 for a final report. I will bet Dollars to donuts, he's going to ask for uh, an extension. Oh, I do love dollars to donuts. Okay, <laughs> when is this going to start? When does this get underway? Well, I would think uh, he's got to assemble a staff. That's going to take some time. He's got, you know, the other thing, he's got to find himself a really crack council, lead council, um, because the commissioner doesn't do all the work by himself or herself. They need some really good staff people. I suspect he's going to take at least a couple weeks to do that, if not a little longer. Uh, and I wouldn't be, I'd be surprised if he held any hearings uh, for at least a, a couple months as he gets all his ducks in a row, gets his staff lined up, comes up with a strategy, starts to you know, carve off where his his roadmap as he wades his way through all these sectors. I mean, he's got to figure out, do I start with gaming? and then move to real estate, and then move to luxury goods, or, you know, what do I start with here? I don't think he can just move, like, on day one, you're going to talk real estate. Day two, we're going to talk gaming. I think he'll probably want to do it so he spends weeks on one sector and then moves into the next sector, and he's got to figure out what his priorities are and probably what is the most accessible uh, way to do it. Is, is, is gaming the most accessible way, given that German's already done a report on it as uh, he's done one on real estate? He's already got a body of information there, courtesy of Peter German, and maybe that's what he starts with. And then after he gets that, that sorted out, he moves into other sectors such as right. financial institutions and such. But, you know, he's got a big workload ahead of him now. And I know that the desire for a lot of people in this process is to see some people punished for this, right? Criminal prosecutions. How likely do you think we are to see something like that? Well, a public inquiry cannot charge anyone. It, it simply can uncover a body of evidence that the crime will necessarily and obviously be interested in. You know, prosecutors will be paying attention to whatever Mr. Cullen unearths here. They will take that information and they will look at it and say, you know what, there's enough here for us to launch another investigation or the police will launch an investigation. And that information unearthed by a public inquiry can lead to a criminal charge down the road. Keep in mind, someone who gives evidence at a public inquiry, that evidence cannot be used against them in a, in a court proceeding. So there's, that's one check on that. And again, people can't be uh, compelled to give testimony that incriminates them. So um, charges uh, may flow down the road, but not as a direct result of one day of Austin Cullen finding something. Austin Cullen's not laying any charges here, even though he was a former Crown Counsel. That's when I first met him down yeah. at uh, 222 Maine, I think. He was a regional Crown there. And then he became head of the criminal justice branch in uh, the provincial government, and now he's um, a chief or a, a Supreme Court justice, and now he's uh, going to be the commission commissioner here, which will take up at least two years of his life. And it's interesting that a sitting judge was allowed to uh, take this on, because uh, in the past, some the, the chief justice has sometimes turned down requests to take a judge off his roster uh, to go into an inquiry. All right, so it sounds like we're going to be very busy once this thing gets up and running. I just hope it doesn't get bogged down in procedural wrangling. Uh, yeah. That's what happened to the Bingo Gate inquiry. It was a, everybody thought, oh, we're going to get some answers to this. So there's never any 
answers to the thing. And it was the Liberals who shut it down, even though it was an inquiry which was about their political foes, the NDP. Uh, so that thing went nowhere. I hope this was. I don't think this one will go nowhere, but I'm not sure it's going to deliver all the answers and sort of all the revenge people are looking for uh, in a timely fashion. I think uh, there's a lot of lawyers are going to make a lot of money in this thing. That's the safest prediction. That's exactly. I was just going to say that's the one thing we do know. Keith, yeah. thank you so much for that. Okay, so me take care. That's Keith Baldry, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief, giving us some perspective on this inquiry that technically gets underway today, but as Keith pointed out, it'll be a while to get ramped up, weeks to hire staff, figure out the frame of reference, how they're going to tackle this. But you can bet this is something that we will be talking a lot about in the weeks, the months, and the two years ahead. Some individuals have refused to participate in our reviews voluntarily. We are done with asking nicely. Today, our government has given Justice Cullen the authority to do more than ask for voluntary participation. They include the right to inspect any public place and seize records, and the right to apply to court to obtain a warrant to search a private place and seize records, the right to order an individual to attend a hearing and testify under oath, and to order that individual to produce any information or thing in that person's control, and the power to find a person who refuses to respect these orders in contempt in the same way as if an order of our courts was not followed. That is Attorney General David Eby, short time ago, announcing the kind of frames of reference and how this public inquiry into money laundering is going to work. They want to know how it has seeped into real estate, gaming, the luxury car market, you name it. And so the BC Supreme Court Justice Austin Cullen has been appointed to lead this And he's been given full power, as you heard, to order individuals to testify, to force witnesses to turn documents over, and refusal to cooperate can result in contempt charges. Now, a lot of this discussion wouldn't be happening without the reporting of our next guest, Sam Cooper, National Investigative Journalist for Global News, who's been uh, trying to shed a light on this for quite a few years now. And Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Simi. Now, when you heard the announcement, was it what you expected, or what did you think? Uh, it, it was. It, it sounded like a, a, an inquiry with powerful ability to compel evidence, uh, an inquiry that could, could allow whistleblowers that I have talked to that say they want the protection of testifying under oath so they can name names. That will be allowed. And for people that don't want to testify, it sounds like they can be forced to. So I, I'm not an expert on inquiries, but from what I heard, uh, it sounded like a, a broad and powerful frame. And uh, Premier Horgan was asked, look, there, we have reported at Global that uh, some things occurred under the NDP government's watch in the late 90s. He was asked, will you allow the commissioner to look back to those days? And he said, absolutely. We are ready for that kind of uh, examination if, if need be. So you've spoken, as you pointed out, to many whistleblowers here. Do you expect to now hear them, you know, and their testimony in this inquiry? I have already talked to uh, at least one uh, prominent whistleblower that, uh, in in the terms of text, sent me the multiple thumbs up and 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 said yes, they are ready to give evidence. I won't say the name at, at this point, but I'm aware of what what sound to me like serious and powerful detailed allegations. This person wants to bring forward, and I I believe you know in the in the previous week or two, I've heard from a number of people that are just waiting to come forward and testify 
And whether, you know, hearing directly from them or people that have talked to them, I have heard this spans from, you know, average casino workers in the past all the way up to prominent politicians, current and former in B.C. Mm, Okay. Now, Sam, what got us here? Like when you think back to all the reporting you've done, when did you first start to get an inkling of this? The problem of money laundering and the scale we see in British Columbia it's hard to exactly pinpoint, but for, for myself, when, when I started looking at just the insane and unexplainable moves in the real estate market, uh, others were looking as well, you know, around 2013 to 2015, there was market action that could only be explained by, by either massive flows from elsewhere, nothing connected to BC's economy, or fraud or crime. So that was my first indication. And when I I would say that uh, I basically stumbled upon some major players that we can say are accused of big crimes in China, of coming to BC with their money. And when I realized they were involved in large-scale real estate development, and they clearly were the most aggressive buyers in the market, that to me was when I knew major money laundering was occurring. I later learned these were the same people implicated in the casino scandal. What do you, who do you want to hear from, Sam? Like now that we've got, you know, the next 18 months where we're going to be hearing about from people, testimony, who do you think's testimony is most important here? It's, uh, it, it could span far and wide. We, we recently talked to a, a casino whistleblower uh, who worked with uh, the Richmond Casino in the late 90s and says that she witnessed with detailed notes actual high-level gangsters transacting on the floor. I believe she wants to come forward. So that would be what I would call a, a mid- to lower-level employee. There are a number that probably I, that I know want to come forward and tell their stories we, we can go up to the executive level, people with decision-making power or people who spoke directly to executives. I know that people in the industry like that want to come forward. Again, all the way up to potentially sitting ministers in British Columbia and former high-level politicians in, that dealt with uh, you know, casinos in many ways. I think we need to hear from them, and I'm being told that uh, some of those types of people want to testify. It could even be former police officers who for years have been baiting the table that this type of crime is happening and needs to be prosecuted, and they say they weren't being listened to. So if they're saying that, then maybe we need to hear from the brass of police organizations and ask why not. I think that's been the missing piece all along here is, right, like you were talking to people at the mid-level and below who saw this happening, but what we haven't yet heard is from the higher-ups about why. Like, why did you seem to look the other way? That's the $7 billion question in British Columbia. We've been asking it for a while, and I don't believe we've got anywhere close to adequate answers from, uh, I'll just say, from from the RCMP brass, from uh, high-level bureaucrats in British Columbia, from regulators. Mr. German's report said no one was minding the hen house, and uh, he didn't name names, but uh, an inquiry would start to answer those questions, I believe. Well, that's what we're going to hear. Sam, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Simi. That is Sam Cooper, National Investigative Journalist for Global News, who has been on this money laundering story for years now. And now we're going to finally start to get testimony, we hope, and hear from people who've been wanting to come forward for several years to 
tell about what they saw, what they tried to do to prevent this, and tell their story, essentially. And Sam says that is exactly what he is hoping to hear as well in the weeks and months ahead. Just a warning before we get into this discussion. It it may distress you. So we are saying that listener discretion is advised for this next segment. Because if you've been on social media in the past 24 hours, and you have probably seen this story that we're about to talk about, it has to do with a video of an RCMP officer in Kelowna interviewing an underage Indigenous teenager. The teenager is being interviewed because she is reporting a sexual assault that happened while she was in the care of the child protection system. Now, the network APTN has obtained a tape of the interview, and it's being made public because of the line of questioning that is being taken by the police officer in this video. Now, here's some of the tape that APTN obtained, and we're going to warn you that this clip does contain some explicit discussions. So again, listener discretion is advised here. It's going to be about 45 seconds long. Were you at all turned on during this at all, even a little bit? Physically, you weren't at all responsive to his advances, even maybe... um, Subconsciously? Maybe subconsciously, but no, not. I was really scared. Okay. Because you understand that when a guy tries to have sex with a female and the female is completely unwilling, it's very difficult, right? Yeah, yeah, it hurt a lot. It hurt a lot? At the beginning? For the whole thing. Okay, and how does that compare to experiences you've had in the past sexually? It didn't hurt this much. Like, I actually bled yesterday in my underwear. And where's where's that underwear now? It's evidence somewhere. That's just part of the questioning here, and it is outrageous to listen to. What kind of questions are these to a teenager who is in the child protection system? Now, we wanted to talk about this story, the response that it has been getting. So joining us now is Holly Moore, who's an Investigates reporter with APTN. Holly, thanks for joining us. Hi. Hi. Thanks so much. What kind of reaction have you been getting to this? Well, it's been an overwhelming reaction. The, uh, you know, stories like this can sometimes bring out, you know, both sides of this uh, argument. And, and it's very clear that there is no side in this video. The video is clearly um, very interrogative of the young woman. There's a lot of language that, you know, for me, when I was looking at it, I was thinking, well, was this from 2012? How is this even possible? Uh, we've heard from, you know, celebrities in the U.S. We've heard from Carolyn Bennett, the uh, Indigenous Services Minister, this morning. Uh, Andrew Shear just led question period with a question about this video. So it's gotten a lot of reaction and also from Indigenous women who say, you know, this is typical of our experience. If you're just waking up to this now, then where have you been these past decades? What kind of reaction, though, from the RCMP? Uh, so I haven't heard back. I uh, sent out a number of requests to RCMP in BC, which is where the tape is from. Um, we've also tried to get in touch with uh, the National RCMP. We've tried to get in touch with Ralph Goodall to comment, and we've heard nothing. So not even an acknowledgement that they got the question. Um, so it's, it's been silence. Holly, what do we know about the circumstances of this? Like, how long ago was it? You mentioned 2012 there. What happened in this case? Well, the case came, uh, it's actually from March 2012, 
and it, it, the video, which we, you know, we don't get to see these videos very often, this point of contact between a sexual assault complainant and police. And so uh, the video was leaked to me by a source, and it had surfaced as the result of a, a civil suit that was against um, the Ministry of Child and Family Development there in BC, and uh, it surfaced because the complainant in this in this uh, suit had said that you know she had made this sexual assault complaint and that it was ignored. So now we know that you know it's very clear that the officer's stance is that he clearly does not believe her. So we don't know what that means for the civil case going forward. Uh, the woman's lawyer, Michael Patterson, came on the record uh, yesterday to say, you know, um, this actually adds weight to her claim that she was ignored. And the fact that there are no MCFD employees there from the ministry with her uh, while she's been in, being interrogated is is very questionable. And yeah. in the entire two-and-a-half-hour video, so this is from a two-and-a-half-hour video, and, uh, you know, I went through it. I had an assistant go through it. And, you know, the only time that the ministry staff really speaks to her is to ask if she wants to go for a hamburger. So was she interrogated for two-and-a-half hours? And how old was she at this point? Uh, she was 17 at the time. And uh, the the full video is two and a half hours long. Um, there, you know, there aren't any points where, she, you know, she's asked if she wants to take a break. She's, you know, the the questions get more and more and more personal. Um, there's points in the video where he's, um, you know, creating sort of hypothetical scenarios like, well, what if you didn't know this guy? Um, and he says to her, you know, making a report to the police that is false is a crime. It's not something that we joke about. He accuses her oh, of lying wow. to avoid getting in trouble with her foster parents. Um, you know, and and one of the things that really hit me was the fact that at no point does she break. At no point does she capitulate and say, okay, you're right. I'm lying. Uh, it's clear that, you know, we, we know that there were no charges laid in this incident. Um, we don't know how far the police went with their investigation, if they interviewed this, this perpetrator, alleged perpetrator at all. But I can tell you that the amount of courage that she shows and resilience in standing up to this kind of questioning is extraordinary. Do we know, it, like, was she taken to hospital? Is she okay? What happened? Well, uh, she had been taken to hospital uh, previous to this in, this interview. The police briefly interviewed her at the hospital. She was taken there by her foster father. Um, the circumstances of the alleged uh, sexual assault were by an acquaintance of the of she knew somebody like a friend of a friend, and so this was the representation of this. They brought her back in to the Kelowna. Uh, RCMP station and and began just barraging her with questions. Uh, she's okay um, because there's such a lot of attention on this. Uh, I'm very protective of her and her identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm making sure that she's getting trauma counseling. That she's that we're reporting this in a trauma informed way because. It's too important and too much in the public interest to show this intersection of Indigenous women, sex assault victims, and the police. 
Like it's too important. Yeah. You meant it is 2012 here, but I mean, has anything changed since that time? Do you feel like if this happened today, would it be treated differently? Well, I actually asked somebody who might know better. Um, so yesterday I interviewed uh, Chief Commissioner Buller from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And what she said is that, you know, they had heard some instances of extraordinarily good police work in these cases, but unfortunately this is quote-unquote typical of what they heard from survivors and their families across the country. And so that is going back decades. That is going back, you know, months ago. I think that this is a real teachable moment for commanding officers across this country to take a look at how they're interrogating sex assault victims. This isn't a pre-post-Me Too kind of a moment. This This is something that Indigenous women have been reporting for decades. So, Holly, what happens now? I mean, you're still trying to get answers. Where do you go from here? Well, I mean, right now we do know that there has been a political response to the story, and so we're we're doing a number of follows there. Uh, I also would like to hear from Indigenous women's groups um, on you know their own experiences. I think that the the big message here is that this is one of the first times, and I've been covering MMIWG and the police for a couple of decades in my career. This is one of the first times I've ever seen this kind of point of contact, and I think that it needs to be shared as widely as possible. Um, the really uh, the really sad part is, is that we're also getting responses from people to say, this happened to me too. Oh, that is the sad part. And so we're really investigating those rigorously as well. Well, I look forward to hearing more about it, Holly. Listen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. That is Holly Moore. She's the producer at APTN Investigates, covering this story uh, about an interview that was done between an RCMP officer and an underage Indigenous teenager in the care of government. This was in 2012. And she's reporting a sexual assault uh, that happened while she was in the care of the child welfare system. And the tape is just, we played you a little bit of it earlier, but it's just awful to listen to the kind of questions that are being directed at this poor girl without having a ministry representative there to represent her interests. Uh, this is being talked about in the House of Commons today. You can bet there'll be more to come. So we'll continue to update you on that story. You know, at the heart of all of this discussion, this plague of money laundering that we have here in BC is the overdose crisis. It is the fact that these gangsters, these money launderers, are trafficking in drugs. That's where a lot of this money is coming from. And the trail of it that gets laundered leads right back to the proceeds of illicit drugs that are sold on our streets. So we know the consequences are deadly. From January to March of this year, the average number of drug overdose deaths each month in BC was 89. So we thought that today, on this day that a public inquiry is called into money laundering, that we wanted to take a moment here to remember the victims and the families of the thousands of people who have died in recent years as a result of this drug trafficking. I'm joined now by Deb Bailey from Vancouver. Deb's daughter, Izzy, died in December of 2015. Thanks so much for coming in today. And tell me about Izzy. Sure. Uh, Izzy was her nickname, actually. Her her uh, first name is Ola, but so if I go back and forth, you'll understand who I'm talking about. Um, but she had uh, she was a little gal we adopted at three, and right from the beginning, she was a real force, a life force, and she loved to be engaged in things. She was outgoing, friendly, bubbly, social. She did have her challenges because she'd spent three years in an, in an orphanage, and um, 
but uh, she had a lovely childhood. She loved uh, all things animals. She uh, played hockey. She was an awesome ice hockey goalie. And she used to tell me, Mommy, hockey is my life. <laughs> and uh, she uh, rode horses. She was a cadet, worked her way up to be a warrant officer. She could play the bagpipes. Wow. Had a black belt. Yeah, and these were all things that she chose to do. So she really loved things. Um, when she was about 13, a mood disorder that probably um, her birth mom had kicked in and things became a bit more difficult for her. And when she was probably 15, 16, she uh, was hanging out with not a great social group and um, started experimenting with mm-hmm. drugs. By the time she was 18, she was firmly in the, <clears throat> the clutches of a much older man who was also a heroin and meth addict. And it was with him that she became firmly addicted. So by the time I you know, could really intervene. It was very difficult. Um, and by the time she wanted help, she was probably uh, 18, 19, and she reached out and went to several um, drug uh, centers and, and really tried hard. And at the end, she was using Suboxone, but she had difficulty um, getting a regular supply of that as well due to the laws at the right. time. So on December 22nd, she went Christmas shopping and uh, she just never came home. And we were looking for her, but, um, you know, just couldn't find her. But the police, uh, two policemen walked up my front, past my front window on the 24th, and I, I just knew that it was Ola. She had overdosed before um, and been taken to emergency. And at that time, when they went to emergency, they were just revived or whatever and um, let go the same day with little Mm follow-up. So that was in in 2015, yeah. And you obviously have learned the sad, sad part is that you are Mm -hmm. not alone in that. Oh, no. I mean, I work with Mum Stop the Harm and I, I do membership, so I know all the members that are coming in and they're sad story after sad story. Do you th- are those stories becoming more prevalent now? I mean, we know how fentanyl has tainted the supply. We know what's been happening out there. Are these stories becoming more common, unfortunately? You know, I, I think what, what we have to realize is that the, the evidence is in the numbers, and the numbers haven't varied much. And so we're still losing in Canada 11 people a day, four in BC. And that just hasn't changed despite some really positive advances because the drug supply is tainted. And uh, uh, there was fentanyl in what killed Izzy. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, fentanyl is often included when the moms or dads are, are applying, talking about what their kids have taken. Yeah. So then when you hear what all these discussions about money laundering mm-hmm. and the ties to the drug supply and, and drugs, how, how does that make you feel about the idea of a public inquiry? Well, you know, when you, when we heard about the tie to drugs, it wasn't surprising, but, but still it was kind of shocking and we were saddened by that. So I think a public inquiry, uh, although it's a slow process and we still need to carry on doing what we're doing to stop the deaths, um, might, is a really good idea because we need to do whatever we can to stop the flow of drug money and drugs coming into our country because they're killing our young people just at a, a horrifying rate. 
And, uh, you know, when you see faces like Izzy or, or many of the other faces I see, you just wouldn't believe that these are the people that are being impacted. Yeah. Do you think and, sometimes uh, people, they think it's two separate things, right? They think yeah. you've got, oh, the, the, the drug problem over here and then you've got money laundering over here, but they're not. They're quite interconnected. Right. I, and I think that's what we're finding, that they were very interconnected and that um, <clears throat> interconnected also with fentanyl in particular. And so, you know, we need to do whatever we can do to make sure that this doesn't happen anymore or again, um, and that, and that people don't look for another way to use Vancouver as a conduit for these, you know, horrifying for fentanyl and its analogs because it's really, really, uh, terrible stuff. You sound like you've learned way too much about this over the last few years. Yeah, way too much. A lot more about addiction than I, than I used to know for sure. And, uh, that's one of the things that we're working on is, is helping people get up to speed about what addiction is. We know that research and application of research, there's a big lag there. And so people are still thinking that, uh, you know, young people like Izzy have a choice and they could just say no. Yeah. But they don't really understand the mechanics of addiction for the susceptible population, um, percentage of the population. So then what do you hope we get out of this? Do you, do you hope it sheds a light on the connection between money laundering and drugs? Like, what do you hope we can gain from this? Well, I think we already have a light. I, what I think we need are some um, regulations to figure out how to staunch this. You know, for example, um, let's say that one of the regulations had to do with Canada Post and, uh, you know, looking at some of the envelopes that are coming in. Well, do we have, does Canada Post have the capacity to do that? Do the police have the capacity to to do their jobs? And so we need to, to look at why um, what happened was was allowed to happen or yeah. was able to happen. It's really insidious, isn't it? Like yeah. when you start learning about it, it's everywhere. It, it really was. It really was everywhere. And then when you find out, you know that. I mean, it seems like money laundering and the real estate market. But then when it gets down to that human toll, the personal number, and you think, oh, gee, you know, that's uh, this is just really more than an individual can deal with. So we really do need some intense government action suggestions to impact the whole situation, which sounds pretty much like it's gotten out of control. <laughs> it does. Do you think that will also help with... People who want to get help, right? If we can shed some light on how this is happening, do you think it just brings more attention to the whole problem? And maybe the people who want to get help can also get help. Well, one of the things I'd like to see is um, <clears throat> a, a treatment when people are ready and treatment without having to pull out your credit card. So I think if we can... Um, uh, you know, if, the, if we use this to figure out, well, you know, how can we get pre people to ready treatment? I think that would be, you know, an awesome thing. Um, yeah. Okay. So for now, when you hear the news, you think, okay, let's do this. Yes, let's do this. Anything that can help stop this horrible human toll that we're, we're, we're paying and stop, um, our area or British Columbia from being a major conduit would be great. Well, <laughs> great news. Deb, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Steb Bailey telling the story of her daughter Izzy, who died of an overdose, and the links to the money laundering situation in our province. Let's get an update now on the current scale and size and scope of the overdose crisis that we've had here in this province now. We've been in a public health emergency for a couple of years now. So are we making any progress with all of the education, all the talk, all the different programs that we have launched as a result of this? Well, new figures out from the BC Coroner Service today show that 268 people died in BC from illicit drugs in the first three months of this year. That's actually down 
But carfentanil was also detected in nearly double the number of fatalities compared to a year ago. And remember, carfentanil is 100 times more deadly than fentanyl. So let's get a bigger picture of these numbers now with the help of Andy Watson, who's the communications manager at the BC Coroner's Service. Andy, thanks for joining us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me on the show. So are there kind of positives and negatives with these numbers today? Yeah, I think, you know, cautious optimism seeing the year-over-year monthly average down, but certainly um, cause for uh, concern, I think, with the carfentanil detection data that we see. Um, When we look at the testing for carfentanil that started in uh, the summer of 2017, we hadn't seen high numbers in in carfentanil-detected deaths. But for the first three months of 2019, we've seen a big increase. Um, 35 deaths had carfentanil detected in all of 2018, and we've already seen 64 for 2019, and we're only three months into the year. So certainly that's something that we're keeping a very close eye on and working with our our partners uh, across the province with health authorities and and provincial organizations to try and really get a better sense of why that's happening. And uh, hopefully that data sharing will will help help those on the front lines to be able to come up with some solutions of of what might be happening and why it's happening. Andy, what do you think that tells us then? I mean, if, if we're improving the numbers in people who are dying, so fewer people are dying and yet we're seeing more car fentanyl is that in some way indicating that maybe the message is getting through but unfortunately the drugs are just getting deadlier yeah i think i think that's exactly exactly it um we know that there's a toxic drug supply with car fentanyl there as you said off the top 100 times more potent than fentanyl uh, the toxicity of that drug supply is certainly very high. Uh, it's an unsafe supply, and that's why we continue to advocate for access to safe supply. Uh, you heard Dr. Bonnie Henry come out uh, a few weeks ago talking about decriminalization. These are all things that we need to consider as we continue to turn a corner here, but certainly I think it shows, and, and, and it's hard to point to specifically what is working, but something is working. When you look at an average of over 130 deaths a month in 2018 for the first three months, and now we're down to 90 a month um, for the first three months of 2019. While that's still, you know, 89, 90 deaths too many, uh, at least it's coming down. And I think, you know, when you come down a third uh, in the total number of deaths, uh, that that's a significant uh, that's a significant chunk that we're we're looking at. And and certainly, we need to continue our efforts. We can't let off our. Uh, let off our pressure here in, in a public health emergency in terms of, uh, of taking action. But but certainly this is a sign for cautious optimism as, as we look forward. I do remember that about a year ago, we saw a dip in the numbers, but then, you know, the next month it went back up. So do you think that by putting three months in a row here of some improving numbers that we can safely say that maybe something is going right? Well, I think even looking back to November of last year, where we started to see a a decline, uh, it got up to 127 in November, December was 116, and then for January, February, and March of this year, looking at 91, 73, and 104 deaths respectively. So down from those high 140, 150 numbers that we've seen previous months uh, dating back to late 2016, uh, so we're down, and I think the trend over time, we have seen a decrease. So Again, cautious optimism, and, and with any data, we have to we have to treat it with caution, as it you know as it is preliminary and, and subject to change as other investigations and testing results come in. But certainly, and hearing what we've heard anecdotally, it sounds like there's that there is a shift, and um, we'll continue to monitor and continue to provide updates, and and you know in particular, we'll be monitoring this carfentanil situation with uh, with with keen interest. 
some of the things that you said you've heard anecdotally then, what is that? Is that, are, are people understanding that the drug supply is toxic? Are they more concerned about that or what's happening? I think two things. The first thing is I, what we'd heard anecdotally for the first three months of the year was that there was a decrease and certainly what we had reporting uh, in real time coming to us. Uh, we wanted to wait until we shared any of that because we wanted to make sure that we had data coming in that supported that. And so that's what we've done today with our data release. But I think the other thing that we're hearing from our partners anecdotally is that the drug checking services, the safe consumption and overdose prevention sites, um, the, the education and marketing that's going on to inform people, we're in the narrative now. And the discussion is certainly, and, and thanks to partners in the media and partners in uh, different agencies across the province, we're, we're able to get the word out and have these discussions about if you know the drug supply is unsafe, don't be risky. Like, yeah. use, use these safe consumption services. Use the drug checking services. And I think the conversations that you and I have had, Simi, and that you've had with Lisa LaPointe, the chief coroner, you know, it just further highlights you know, the risk that's out there. And and by sharing that risk and giving possible solutions, I think it's a step in the right direction. And we've got to continue to do that until really we get this uh, illicit supply off the streets. And that was the key though, wasn't it? It was like almost like people had to be aware of the risk, but be almost be a little bit afraid before they took this seriously. Well, I think that and realize that it's hitting people from all walks of life. I think that initially when this crisis first started, you know, really in, in 2016, I think that there was a finger pointing and well, I don't know anyone that's impacted by that. And I think over time, when you're talking about hundreds of people dying, you know, every year, you know, over 100 a month, people have now had this impact them. And I think that that is sort of everyone knows someone that's been either directly or indirectly impacted by this crisis. And, and I think seeing, you know, hearing some of the stories that have come from families about who their loved ones were, how they were impacted by the crisis, some, in some cases people not knowing, in other cases people knowing but not having the right solution or services in place, it just goes to show that no matter who you are, if you're, if you're somebody that's using substances, there is risk right now. And without a safe supply, um, people that are turning to the streets are, are, are dealing with an illicit market. And, and it's, like, it's like playing a game of uh, Russian roulette. You yeah. just you don't know what's going to come through. So uh, I'm happy to see all the partners on the front lines that have tried to find solutions and tried to create safe space for, for folks that are using substances. Right, but we still have to keep it up, though, right? Because like, oh. if you get slack, it feels like... Like this drug is out there waiting to take people again. Absolutely, and I think that's another challenge. You know, we're we're into this potentially into this era of compassion fatigue, and even to a certain degree, I think when people hear and read about the crisis, it's oh, uh, overdose data is out again. Well what's new. And I think that's another thing, you know, we're trying to find ways to show different data sets to show really who's impacted by this crisis. Certainly with today's news, the carfentanil piece and the fact that we may have turned a corner, you know, those are good conversation pieces, but it doesn't change the fact that we need to continue to talk about safety and the public yeah. safety element of this. And that's, that's really the key. The key is let's get past the data and talk about who's being impacted, how to stay safe, and, and where we need to go from here. So hopefully that this, you know, this interview and other interviews today will, will lead to those conversations. And if you know someone in your life that uses substances, talk to them about safe services in their area and what they can do. And certainly the TowardTheHeart.ca website has great info. The coroner service, obviously we publish the statistics on this on a monthly basis. So there's lots of great resources out there and, uh, and certainly lots happening from a government level uh, in terms of trying to combat this crisis as well. Andy, what is that picture? So what is the picture like? Who is the typical person that is dying of a drug overdose? 
Yeah, sadly, this hasn't changed much based on what we're seeing. And, you know, I, I know that this is different in, in Indigenous communities, and we'll, we'll let them do, do the talking on, on what that looks like at, at a later time. Uh, but certainly province-wide, what we're seeing generally, males aged 30 to 59 are, are really that target demographic. Um, you know, more than two-thirds of all illicit drug deaths in B.C. Uh, for the start of 2019 were uh, involving people aged 30 to 60. Males have been accounting for four in every five of the illicit drug deaths over the same period. Uh, It's consistent with what we were seeing last year. Uh Fentanyl also being detected in almost nine in every 10 deaths. Um, That's consistent with what we're seeing. And as we put out in September of last year, we see people in the trades and transportation industry being at a higher risk and certainly people isolated, people who um, are indoors using alone, people that don't have the ability to have someone help them. So how do we get those folks a, not to have shame or stigma when they're using substances, and B, to know what services they can access. And so we'll continue to try and do that work. And again, to try and help prevent death in similar circumstances. All right, Andy, thanks so much for talking to us about it. Thanks so much, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That's Andy Watson, Communications Manager at the BC Coroner Service. We regularly talk to Andy, uh, and he paints this picture for us. There's good news and bad news in the latest set of numbers that the coroner service has released here. The good news is that fewer people are dying versus a year ago. In the first three months of this year, 268 people died in BC from illicit drugs. That is still a startlingly high number, but it is down almost one third from the same period a year ago. But here's the bad news with that. Carfentanil was detected in nearly double the number of fatalities compared to a year ago, and this drug is 100 times more deadly than fentanyl. So it is showing up in larger numbers in the supply. It is more and more responsible for the overdoses, uh, and it is out there. And so that's the one thing they are keeping a very close eye on. And who is dying? Predominantly still men. Uh, Males between the ages of 30 and 59 are still the number one victims of this uh, opioid overdose crisis. Find a way in, simi at cknw.com. Another important reason for us to talk about that today is that the those drugs, like where are they coming from? They're on our streets, people are buying them, people are dying. And the drugs are coming from, you know, gangs. They're coming from organized crime. That money is being laundered. That's all part of the same bigger picture that we're talking about when it comes to money laundering here in BC.